Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, an Associate Professor of Economics at the University of San Francisco. Today, we'll be branching out from the narrow definition of economics to talk about political economy, which is my own specialty. Um, Economists have increasingly realized that you can't just talk about what policies are optimal without thinking about the political response of the people affected and how that may, uh, in turn, change the the final policy outcome. Um, And this kind of thinking has brought us into a broader conversation with scholars from other disciplines, um, realizing there's there's a lot to learn from them as well. So our guest today is Professor Yao Li. Professor Li received her PhD in sociology from Johns Hopkins University, uh, was a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard, and is now an assistant professor in sociology and criminology, law, and society at the University of Florida. She's going to talk to us about her book, Playing by the Informal Rules, Why the Chinese Regime Remains Stable Despite Rising Protests. This book was published in 2019 by Cambridge University Press as part of the studies of Weatherhead East Asian Institute. Um, It was just released in paperback this year. Um, I've been uh, kind of waiting for it for a while. Uh, You know, it was at that that library price of uh, $80 or more, but now it's down to uh, something much more reasonable. So I encourage... uh, Anyone else who, like me, has been wanting to uh, learn more about it to, to now get yourself your own copy. All right. So, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Um, first off, why don't you tell me how you got interested in the topic of protests? Okay, sure. So thanks for having me, Peter. And good to know that the paperback is coming out. I didn't know that before. <laughs> so, um, yeah, how I get started with the project actually is started with my personal experiences. So uh, my mother participated in a protest uh, in early 2000s, and it lasted for several years. And their protest achieved uh, a satisfied success. And then... I got interested in the protest because I see that um, you can do, you can achieve something to, um, if you voice your grievances or complaints to authorities. And uh, there is some um, opportunities for you to achieve success. So that got me uh, interested in uh, starting this project, uh, project on contentious politics in China. Well, so, but, so how would that work, right? If we think about the, the Arab Spring or 1989 in China, um, you know, we usually think of, of protests in, in non-democratic regimes as being a threat, you know, something that has to be brought down with, you know, police and uh, tear gas and tanks. And so, so why is it that, uh, you know, your book says, you know, the title of your book says it all. It says, why the Chinese remains stable despite rising protests. So how, how can that happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is uh, one of the key questions that I asked in my book. And I, uh, it's complicated. I want to um, begin to answer the question by following up with my mother's um, protest experiences. So for her, the protest she participated, it is about um, anti-privatization of a hospital used to belong to a large state-owned factory in China. So this protest took place in a coastal city in northern China, so my hometown. And uh, um, in early 2000s, the hospital, um, as I said, it belongs to a large state-owned enterprise, um, was decided to be um, separated from the state-owned uh, factory. Um, and there are some um, rules for or some fates of the hospital, whether it is to be um, privatized or it is um, accepted or um, municipalized by the uh, uh, government, city government. So because um, 
being taken over by the municipal government would be more beneficial for the hospital employees and retirees. That is uh, the the will of the uh, that is what the uh, protesters they want the hospital employees and retirees they want the government to take over rather than getting the hospital privatized. So this kind of economic incentives got these people to uh, uh, take actions, and uh, they took a lot of uh, different. Uh, uh, matters and they went through different uh, official channels to voice their opinions and uh, complaints. So the, the basic claim is that they want their hospital, uh, the government, the local government, to take their responsibilities of taking over this hospital rather than getting it privatized. Because according to them, the hospital has um, made a lot of contributions to the city's. Uh, development in the past because the hospital which belonged to the large state-owned factory uh, was a major pillar um, in terms of tax revenues for the local governments. In this, um, in this kind of claim, they, uh, justi- they want to justify that the, ho- the local government has a kind of moral obligation to take over the hospital when the uh, state-owned factory is facing a kind of um, uh, financial crisis of taking care of the hospital. So in this, let me, case, let me, let me just jump in here actually, cause I'm thinking, um, that, uh, you know, some of our listeners who, who aren't familiar with China might need a little bit more context. So, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this. So this is the early 2000s. So the late 19, so officially China's, you know, economic reforms kind of started in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, but really the late nineties and the two thousands was the period when a lot of the state owned enterprises. So like the gigantic, you know, factories with sometimes thousands and thousands of people um, were kind of uh, when they realized that they weren't, they weren't economically productive anymore. And so um, not only were they, you know, producing things, maybe that, uh, you know, there didn't need to be so many people working at them or, you know, they weren't able to produce it efficiently on a global scale and people were, you know, could find better jobs maybe in the private sector, but also uh, a lot of them had, um, they were kind of like, even if they were in a bigger city, they were often kind of company towns. So they would provide housing, they would provide hospitals, all the social services weren't actually provided by the government. They were provided by these state-owned enterprises as kind of a branch of the government. So then the question was, you know, how do we, how do we break these, break these up into their component parts, you know, uh, and keep the things that are useful like a hospital. But then you're saying here, the issue was, you know, okay, we're going to, we don't need to have a hospital that's owned by a steel mill or whatever it was, but you know, should the hospital now be you know, owned by the public sector or by the private sector? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, okay. exactly. So this is the exact background, as you said, Peter, that uh, the whole uh, broader uh, political economic background of the hospital, why the uh, hospital needs to be separated from the uh, um, uh, big glass factory um, and um, and why um, it also provides a kind of background for these people. To uh, want to um, the change the government policy that's taking over the hospital, and uh, so um, I, I want to mention that uh, uh, falling back to your question about how it is possible, and uh, I want to explain that why people can express their opinions in China and achieve something, and uh, because this is quite different from what we see on screens or from newspapers, as shown in the Arab Spring and other. Uh, Authoritarian countries that uh, the authorities tend to use tear gas against the uh, uh, civilians and the protesters on the streets. So, yeah, so uh, I interrupted you in the middle of the, the story. So why don't we go back to like, just give us more details about like what uh, your mother's uh, colleagues, like how did they, you know, what were they actually doing over the protests? You mentioned it was over several years. So it wasn't just like uh, one big gathering in the street one day. Um, so what, what are all the channels that, that they used? Exactly. So the ch- official channels they used include the, the petition channel. So uh, across the Chinese bureaucratic system, they build different levels of official offices or official, uh, sorry, petition offices or petition bureaus in charge of taking care of uh, citizens' complaints, grievances, uh, in the form of letter, emails, phones, uh, or vi- personal visits, etc. So uh, by visiting those petition bureaus at different levels of the uh, local government in uh, in my hometown, that uh, the protesters, the hospital protesters, they uh, express their opinions. 
clear and loud. And uh, also, did they go in a large group or like? I mean, if it's just a you know showing up at the complaints office, then mm-hmm. that doesn't seem to be what I'd call a protest. That's more like, yeah. So so were they were they acting as a group or individually or like a letter writing campaign or? Well, uh, as you, uh, as we mentioned, that is uh, it lasts for many years, for several years. So sometimes they showed up in individuals, two or three people, usually the activists. Uh, but uh, in many other cases, they showed up in groups, like uh, dozens of people, fifty people, and sometimes one hundred people. So uh, in addition to using the petition channels, they also uh, uh, took to the streets. So they demonstrate. In front of the city hall, and they did this uh, in groups of one hundred and two hundred and four twice in front of the uh, city hall, in front of the leaders, um, uh, the uh, uh, the city leaders who work um, the buildings in front of there, and the two um, at at that during those demonstrations, they shouted slogans, uh, they chanted international, and uh, they. Also, uh, have some uh, uh, interactions with the police officers, and at different uh, uh, demonstrations, their interactions with the police officers may differ, and this goes into the learning curve of the those uh, informal uh, informal norms, which we we can talk later. But anyway, those two demonstrations uh, in the group of. One thousand, uh, one hundred, and the other, uh, with a group of two hundred, were largely peaceful, and uh, nobody got arrested or hurt, and no uh, major fights took place between between the protesters and uh, the local police. And the uh, and the following those two demonstrations, um, formal meetings between the local officials, uh, largely composed of different officials from, uh, different. Uh, uh, departments of the city government, including the health um, bureau and um, um, financial bureau, and etc. Civil uh, bureau of civil affairs uh, and the petition bureau offices, they took part in the meetings with the protesters. And uh, um, during those meetings, the um, uh, officials tend to appease those protesters and uh, give them promise of. Uh, taking care of this issue, paying attention to their uh, uh, grievances and complaints, opinions, and uh, promise to give some uh, response in the near future. And then, so after keep talking with these um, uh, government officials and keep visiting the official uh, channels, such as the petition uh, offices uh, on the uh, Kind of weekly or monthly uh, routine uh, after a total of six or seven years, this case ended up uh, with a success and without a major, uh, without any people were punished. So, this is a single case to present uh, for a kind of peaceful resolution of. uh, uh, social protest in China is about economic protest. I don't want to present this case as a representative case of all protests in China. And just as my book, Playing Violin from a Rose, has shown, there are a lot of very uh, variations in terms of um, different types of protests were treated differently by the um, uh, authorities. And also, there are uh, Regional uh, differences and also differences across social groups in terms of the dynamics between uh, the interact, uh, in terms of the dynamic interactions between officials and protesters. So actually, I want to show the complexity of protest and contentious politics in China. And in addition to this peaceful case, there are a lot of um, violent. Confrontations between authorities and protesters, and uh, um, the rationale and the dynamic between those cases can be explained later. Right. So yeah, but but that's this definitely is you know the kind of story that um, uh, you know this we've heard a lot of from China, especially uh, especially I'd say in the in the early two thousands, um, and 
you know, that it's really striking to, uh, you know, to Westerners. I mean, we think of, I mean, for instance, like, you know, so what was the, what was the government's motivation, right? If we were, you know, in the U.S., you'd say, okay, I'm the mayor of the city. I want to be reelected. If there's, you know, people on the streets, then, you know, they're going to, they're going to mobilize voters against me. You know, it makes me look bad. I'm going to lose, lose the next election, but uh, these aren't elected officials. So instead, you know, uh, you know, in the news, uh, as as we're recording, uh, you know, a Belarusian dissident was plucked off an airplane while he was flying over Belarusian airspace, um, you know, in a sort of quasi hijacking, as it appears. Um, and, you know, that's kind of what we're more used to thinking, like, this is this is what real dictators do, right? They find the leaders, and they pull them out, and they disappear. Um, and then they make a t- confession on television saying that they were they were wrong, and they're so sorry. And, you know, and also they're being treated really nicely and whatever, right? So, so why don't, um, why in this case didn't uh, the local government uh, do that with um, uh, with the hospital protesters? Yeah, I, I think there are some um, reasons here. Firstly, um, the pressure there are some pressure coming from above from the central government. So um, the central government is very um, is very. Um, um, how to say, um, they attentive to maintaining regime legitimacy and stability. They, uh, um, intentionally and repeatedly call, uh, uh, call for use of cultures, um, uh, 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 call for cultures in dealing with the, uh, uh, protests that are considered not, uh, um, antagonistic. So some protests are like the economic protest, like my mother's case. And another uh, kind of reason to explain why local officials sometimes are lenient to protest is that sometimes these officials, including um, police officers, they are invited in the local community. For example, in my mother's case, when they were demonstrating in front of the city hall, um, the demonstration I uh, took part in in 2007, actually, uh, sorry, 2011, uh, actually a police officer entered the protester group and started to have a chat very friendly with the protester. Um, it turned out they know they knew each other for, for a long time and they were just using this opportunity to catch up with each other. So, and there are also other reasons. For example, the protesters, uh, their claim are in line with the local officials' interest. For example, uh, if this um, in one city or in a di- district of the city, uh, the local officials they want to um, develop the tourism in that region, and uh, but um, the city government or provincial uh, government wants the um, uh, waste incineration uh, facility or other kind of environmentally sensitive um, project to be built in the city, in the region, then it will um, cause concerns not only among the local residents, but also by the local officials who want to develop a tourism industry. Because having a kind of uh, environmentally sensitive project may undermine their effort to develop the tourism industry in the locality. So in this case, then the interest of the protesters and the local officials are uh, are, are similar. So um, uh, in this case, the local officials may uh, secretly support the protesters. So some the reasons can be complicated and uh, uh, they, they can come from both the top down and uh, the other forces can come from the uh, local officials, their own interest. And finally, the last uh, reasons can be explained by the uh, protesters. So many protesters in China, they uh, impose self-censorship. So for example, they don't uh, make claims for over- overturning the Communist Party uh, our building a uh, Western uh, democracy, calling for uh, Western democracy in China, or they want the separate um, certain regions from the communist rule. So uh, when they try to refrain from making very radical political claims, and they try to uh, maintain peaceful and uh, do not establish links with other protests, in many cases, uh, these protests um, who self-impose self-censorship can um, have uh, some space for negotiation and uh, um, having a dialogue with the local officials. 
Okay, right. So you're starting to get into like, what what are these rules? Maybe before we go further into that, why don't you tell us more? So, you know, you gave one example of a protest, but obviously, you know, this is a, a work of social science, not journalism. So, and, you know, this was your motivation, but like, tell us like, how, how many of these protests are there? Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned also different types, but like, broadly speaking. Well, the, the official number is, uh, is not, uh, the reason the official number is no longer available, but um, according to some researchers, uh, the number they found is that by um, 2011, um, around um, 500 protests took place a day, and the total number for 2011 is uh, uh, 182,000, uh, sorry, 182,000 cases. So um, it, that means what, 500 a day, protest a day. And uh, so you can see that uh, the uh, social protest is really a kind of uh, dramatic event taking place in China in the past several years. And this kind of uh, uh, change um, is very unprecedented because in 19, in the popular cited uh, number in 1993, only... Um, 8,700 cases took place. And in just a few years, the cases just grew skyrocketly. So, um, and so this is kind of uh, numbers that have been leaked from official sources um, from uh, at, at various points, but but in the past uh, past 10 years, uh, they've been a little bit tighter with with, letting, with not letting out this kind of data. Is that the <laughs> story? So, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and that's 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 an amazing number, especially you know when you consider the the growth rate, you know, uh, under nine under nine thousand to uh, close to two hundred thousand um, per year. Um, you know, even uh, obviously we you always want to be careful in China. You know, a country of of uh, more than a billion people, um, there's a lot of things that can go on uh, without um, you know can be can get large numbers of anything, even with things that seem uh, uncommon. But but certainly relative to you know our uh, preconceptions of, of authoritarian regimes. Um, that's, uh, that's a really remarkable, uh, fact. Um, so, so yeah. So why don't you go into now, like what, what, what are the, um, what are the rules you, you started on this, but what are the rules that, that apply like, uh, and, and who imposes those rules also? Mm-hmm. So I think that um, um, who imposed those rules? So those rules, I want to say that they um, they were generated by the interactions of protesters and um, the officials. So what are those rules? So these informal rules, which I uh, emphasize in the book, is that they are unwritten. So uh, they are at odds with the formal written uh, institutions, the formal laws, but the informal rules or unwritten rules, they are known by both protesters and uh, uh, the officials. So some of, some examples of those informal rules include um, peaceful, um, disruptive uh, actions or demonstrations, protests, sometimes um, in many cases can be tolerated. So, and also, um, if you follow the official rules, even you are uh, engaging in uh, an illegal gathering, you can still be tolerated and if you listen to officials at the protest, at the demonstration. So, um, for example, in the case that I illustrated in my mother's protest case, so in those demonstrations, they didn't get the permit from the Public Security Bureau. According to um, the Chinese law, um, demonstrations, matches, and uh, other types of gatherings are required to have a permit issued by the Public Security Bureau. But if they, if they asked for a permit, could they get one? I mean, uh-huh, why not just ask for one? Yeah, uh, they can rarely get one. In my interviews with the uh, police officer, uh, he basically said they never issued a uh, those kind of permit, and uh, um, uh, he said that it's actually illegal to uh, take to the streets and demonstrate. And uh, but there is also very rare exception. So in one in another protest case that I uh, investigate, um, the workers when they uh, want to demonstrate in their own 
um, residential compound. They actually get the permit, but they were required to stay in the residential compound uh, without taking uh, to the streets. So, um, but very rarely these people can get a permit for demonstration and matches. So in this case, many protests, when they, many uh, demonstrations and matches in China on the streets are illegal. And okay. yeah, so they're illegal, but they do them anyway, and it's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I do have um, qualitative and quantitative evidence for this in the book. Okay, so um, so how do how do police respond to this? So uh, you said you know when people uh, follow the rules. Or at least, you know, in in your uh, in the hospital case, you know, they they followed the rules, and the police were, you know, uh, pretty gentle, and and ultimately the the government actually gave them what they wanted. Maybe because the local government was actually happy to have it, so having popular pressure kind of let them talk to their bosses and say, "Hey, this is what the citizens are protesting for, and why don't we just go ahead and give it to them? Because you know, it'll make less trouble." Um, but uh, but you said it's not always that way. So so what happens when things go wrong? When it when is there uh, violence either by protesters or by the police. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that there are several uh, reasons for uh, things didn't go well. So on the police side, maybe they received the order from the officials, um, from the city government, for example, that uh, they don't want these people to be on the streets. And at the same time, the government don't want to make any concessions. At this time, under the pressure from the city, uh, local governments, uh, local officials, then police may um, use uh, violence. They want to um, clear the scene. And uh, uh, so this is uh, one possibility, one scenario. And uh, another one is that uh, when protesters um, go violent, uh, the interactions of police and protesters go violent uh, accidentally. And uh, for example, when the protesters, they uh, see the police um, presence or the police actions as uh, illegitimate, for example, if they uh, engage in very uh, rude or they want to arrest some um, uh, citizens, especially some elderly uh, citizens, then this can uh, escalate the conflicts quickly and uh, may uh, start a violent confrontation between the protesters and the police. And uh, um, so there are different scenarios, especially when there is a large gathering, large demonstration taking place. So, and also in some cases, you uh, some people would argue that uh, some um, plainclothes police infiltrate the protester uh, group and try to start a trouble and then try to give the police an excuse for using repression against a peaceful, original peaceful protest. So the reasons can be complicated. Okay. So, um, all right. So, you know, they can, uh, the protest can happen and you can get what you want. I mean, so, so tell me again, why, why is it that, you know, uh, I guess you gave one, one reason was maybe the local government wants to have leverage with the central government and say, Hey, look, the people are demanding this, you know, we really got to give it to them. Um, but, uh, why is it that, um, you know, from the central government perspective in Beijing, you know, if they see, you know, why, why shouldn't they just fire that guy? If they say, okay, you're, you're the mayor of this city, you're supposed to keep, uh, keep control and you're letting people protest in the streets, um, then, you know, and it's illegal. So you're fired. And, you know, the next guy is going to go in and, uh, you know, and his job is going to be to, you know, bash in some heads and arrest some ringleaders and make this thing go away. Why not? Um, why not do that? We certainly see that, you know, many, many authoritarian regimes around the world even sometimes democracies, you know, they're pretty happy to uh, do whatever it takes to get people off the streets. Um, what is the what is the advantage uh, to the regime of uh, letting people um, engage in this popular protest? Yeah. So um, again, I think that the central government is concerned about regime stability and regime legitimacy. So many um, protest claims are in line with the central government's policies. So they are using, as many studies have shown, 10 studies have shown, these protesters, they are using the uh, law and also the uh, government policies to 
to justify their claims and their demands. And it's really hard for the government to simply deny these protesters um, who are using the, this uh, legal uh, 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 using the government policies. Um, and uh, on the other hand, the central government, I think, um, when they are facing uh, uh, different uh, uh, protests with similar claims from different regions, it's really hard for them um, to just, just uh, ask uh, local officials uh, in multiple places to use uh, repression against those protesters. And uh, also, this is against their um, um, directives um, and their guidelines on dealing with the uh, citizen protest. Um, that that uh, one directive uh, that is mentioned in the book is um, contradictions uh, among the people. So for contradictions among the people, for this type of contradictions, the central government uh, uh, really wants the local officials to be uh, cautious when using violence. So they don't want them to be harshly repressed um, because for contradictions among the people were considered as a kind of legitimate uh, can, uh, 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 legitimate contention. So they think that this either uh, workers, peasants, or students, or ordinary citizens, they have some kind of legitimate demands. And when these people are voicing their grievances, um, local people, sh- local officials should not simply use harsh repression and use coercion against them. So this, uh, this is also a kind of concern um, by the central governments um, to maintain uh, regime legitimacy. Okay, but let me let me push back on that a little bit. So if we say, um, you know, you mentioned this idea of contradictions within the people, which is, uh, uh, you know, something from uh, Chairman Mao's thinking, um, or at least what he said he thought. Uh, but, you know, he said that, which sounds nice, like, okay, not, not all contradictions or disagreements uh, among, you know, the people are, are antagonistic. We're not all enemies. Sometimes we can disagree honestly, and, and we should be, you know, calm and measured about that. But, you know, you look at what he actually did, and he was uh, not a nice guy with people who disagreed with him. Um, a lot of the time, he was not open to popular feedback about what, about when his uh, policies were not, um, even, even you know, even when they weren't achieving the outcomes that he said he wanted to achieve, like, you know, China's development and the, the, the benefit of the Chinese people. Um, he was not open to hearing um, from his colleagues or from, uh, from the citizens about that. So, you know, clearly not, you know, not all Chinese governments have followed that rule. So it seems like there's some uh, motivation there. And then I guess the other thing is, you know, yes, once they're, you know, once they're on the street and, you know, being covered by the media and people are learning about the protest, they could say, well, yeah, gee, you know, what they're protesting about, you know, ordinary citizens might say, you know, that seems pretty reasonable. Why don't you just, you know, why don't you just give it to them? Um, You know, because it's legitimate and it's in line with the government objectives. But again, if you, you know, that, that assumes you let them get on the street. I mean, if you, if you send a clear message from the start, like, you know, you, you stay home or, you know, the, whoever we can pick out as a ringleader is going to be arrested. Plus the media is not going to cover you because, you know, we can control that. Um, you know, why, why shouldn't they just suppress everything? Mm-hmm. So, um, actually this is, this is a question of concerning about the costs and risks of using repression against our contention, our protest. So um, according to the current literature in comparative politics and social movement studies, repression um, sometimes is very, uh, has a high cost and is very risky. Uh, there is a no uh, certain, uh, no concrete relationship between repression and protest. So uh, numerous studies have shown that uh, repression can increase or decrease um, protest and uh, the reaction, the direct directions between re- um, protest and uh, repression can be diverse, and you don't know whether repression can be always effective. So maybe it can be effective on this protest, but not on other um, protests. And if you only rely on harsh repression against the uh, protest, then um, it requires uh, the personnel and economic. 
uh, and the financial resources for doing so. You need to uh, find people, employ people, um, dispatch uh, police officers, military, and other security forces to constantly uh, impose a severe sanction against the society. Uh, this is um, a very high. Uh, this is not sustainable for uh, maintaining rule and uh, for uh, uh, many. Um, leaders in uh, authoritarian, uh, in authoritarian, uh, authoritarian countries, they have noted, uh, realized this, and uh, there are some recent studies showing that uh, these authoritarian uh, um, leaders they are becoming more um, smart in terms of dealing with issues, and there is a learning curve among these um, uh, rulers uh, in terms of how to uh, use a less um, Risky and less um, costly method in dealing with the um, protesters. So, part of the book also talk about uh, different types of repression in dealing with the contention. So, in addition to using arrests and using um, police or military uh, force, um, there are a, tense, uh, a variety of softer means in dealing with the protests including internet hacking and relative uh, repression as Oberon and Deng Yanhua has uh, elaborated, and also um, some other uh, less, over, uh, less obvious, less um, uh, overt means to deal with the repression. And another mean uh, for dealing with the contention is to prevent, um, to prevent its occurring in the first place. So authorities can also use preventative measures to deal with uh, contention. So it's not just uh, <laughs> overt or harsh repression that the authorities are taking into consideration, but also a number of other means for dealing with the contention. And in terms of why these authorities, they don't just use the harsh means as I said that both the central government and the lo local government find it's costly and risky. So um, that's not an option for them to deal with every protest. But I'm not saying that they don't use them at all. As my book shows that they do use in some cases. Right. So you mentioned in your book, there's, uh, you know, what we've been talking about mostly so far is, is regime engaging protest. But you mentioned there is also regime challenging protest where they're, they're really breaking all these informal rules. So so just just to to set up the contrast, could you could you talk us through, um, you know, some of the key examples of that, and and you know why how mm -hmm. they're different, and, and how the government res response is different. Right, right. So I um, categorized protests in China into two camps. One is regime engaging protests, and the other is regime threatening protests. So the key difference between the two types of protests is that for regime engaging protests, um, both authorities and protesters they recognize the legitimacy of the other side and they are open to uh, negotiation and dialogue. By contrast, in regime threatening protests, uh, neither officials nor, author uh, nor protesters recognize the legitimacy of the other side and they close the door or they are not willing to engage in uh, dialogue and negotiation. So um, examples of regime engaging protests uh, include my mother's case. In that case, you see that authorities and the protesters, they have a lot of dialogue with each other, although the dialogue can be um, sometimes contentious. But anyway, um, they have dialogue with each other and the uh, conflict was resolved within the um, official, and official channel. And... Uh, but one example uh, for regime threatening protest is the uh, Falun Gong protest uh, during um, during the late 1990s and the 2000s. So uh, in that, Falun Gong is a quasi-religious group. So um, initially, the Chinese government was supportive to the Falun Gong's development, but uh, over time, when the Falun Gong has attracted uh, millions of followers across China. And it also staged a very dramatic event. Um, um, that is, they besieged the uh, Zhongnanhai, which is the uh, residential compound for Chinese 
uh, leaders, they work and live there. So it, uh, they when they besieged Zhongnanhai um, in 1999, the Chinese officials, they really fear that Falun Gong is becoming um, most threatening to the regime's uh, rule and then began to stage a nationwide crackdown campaign against the Falun Gong practitioners. And um, uh, um, since the state uh, uh, issued the crackdown uh, order, uh, Falun Gong practitioners becoming more transgressive and use more uh, 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 use of a variety of uh, offensive way to uh, state their grievances. And uh, then the confrontation between the officials and protesters become more ugly. So, um, so you certainly still see the Falun Gong um, in the U.S. You know, they're often protesting outside Chinese embassies. Um, they have the Shen Yun um, performances uh, where they sort of have uh, uh, dressed it up as traditional Chinese dance performance, and then have a have a little propaganda element at the end about how the party is bad. Um, and uh, and they have newspapers which have been, uh, I guess, increasingly prominent in um, spreading, uh, you know, spreading at least poorly substantiated, um, uh, you know, negative information about the party, but all that's outside the country. It seems like, I mean, within the country, is there, is there anything, it seems like within the country has been pretty successful. I mean, is there, is there anything left, uh, you know, threatening the regime, you know, now that they've, they've had this, you know, crackdown for, uh, you know, uh, over, uh, what, 20 years now. <laughs> So actually, um, there are some, um, I think the Falun Gong practitioners, they um, largely turn and around their activities. They, um, for example, uh, we do see still see some resistance, but it's very kind of underground resistance and, and uh, overt, uh, covert resistance. For example, you can see on renminbi, on the Chinese currency, um, on um, maybe one yuan, um, it says Falun Da Fa Hao. That is mm. Falun, <laughs> Falun Gong is, is glorious, it's good. Uh, or in the walls, residential walls, uh, you can see similar uh, slogans Falun Da Fa Hao was painted on the walls. And, uh, uh, but it can be uh, um, just uh, um, blurred, uh, quickly uh, be cleaned by, by local people. So um, those kind of actions, uh, activities were still engaged by some Falun Gong practitioners. And then my mother told me stories that when they were waiting at the bus stops, um, some people, middle-aged women or um, elder, older women would uh, come to talk to them and um, pro- uh, tell them how Falun Gong is good or something like that. Mm. Okay, so they're... They're pretty deep underground, but they're still they're still uh, still active at some level. Um, that's that's fascinating. Um, so so I, I didn't ask you much about your methodology at the start, so I, I neglected to do that. But so you you had a combination of um, data work and, and then field work in a few locations. Um, so and I know you know one of the things you got out of this is that uh, the the rules are kind of not exactly the same for everyone. There's differences across regions, you know across the city folk versus the country folk. So why don't you um, sketch out what, what some of those uh, differences are? Right. So according to my uh, quantitative research, I do show that uh, um, peasants tend to be uh, repressed, peasant protests tend to be repressed compared to other social groups, people's protests. And also uh, minorities uh, um, protest, uh, especially by Xinjiang and, uh, uh, sorry, by Uyghur and uh, uh, Tibetans tend to be repressed compared to other uh, people. And uh, 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 also urban protests tend to be tolerated compared to rural protests. And then I elaborate on this regional and social groups differences uh, in chapter four of my book by showing that uh, for uh, the same claims, uh, that is against the uh, uh, opposition to waste incineration, 
in different locations, um, two in rural areas, two in urban areas. And um, in the rural areas, they were by peasants. In the urban areas, they were staged largely by uh, middle-class professionals. Um, the dynamics, the interactions, and the protest space uh, for these um, different groups and the locations, people, uh, they uh, differ. The, in general, the authorities are more tolerant of urban uh, middle-class um, protest compared to the peasant protest. Um, there are some reasons for this. One is that the middle class people, they have more resources. Um, they have more economic resources due to the rural urban, this, uh, rural urban, uh, gap in China's development over the last six decades or so. And also these middle class people, uh, they have more access to the media. So some, um, um, protesters, middle class professional protesters, they themselves are um, uh, work in the media industry. Um, or they know somebody who work for uh, the media and the uh, outlets. And also, some uh, in some rare cases, uh, these people they have connections with political elites. So then they can um, rely on those political capital or social capital to make their cases heard, um, to hire um, Chinese officials, even Chinese leaders. And uh, uh, so these economic, social, and political uh, resources are owned by these uh, middle class professionals uh, and not, uh, um, tend not to be seen in the uh, Chinese peasants. And... Um, so those are some of the reasons. And another uh, reason is that uh, for the police, um, I, I mentioned that if the local officials are the police officers, they are embedded in the local community. For example, they learn the protest, the police officers, they uh, personally learn, uh, know the protesters. They tend to be uh, more lenient towards uh, the protesters. So if the protesters are the police officers, neighbors, uh, relatives, or friends, they tend to be sympathetic to protesters. And for the Chinese uh, police officers, they often, until very recently, they um, um, they largely res- reside in the urban areas. And uh, they tend to be uh, identify themselves as urbanized rather than uh, peasants. In this case, it's they tend to um, they tend to be more sympathetic to urban uh, uh, to urban middle class professionals who uh, the police officer would think that they belong to this group of people rather than uh, showing the similar sim- sympathy to the uh, rural uh, peasants. Okay, so so if there if there is a protest in a village over some issue, probably the people who be if if anyone is asked to crack down on it, it'd be someone who's uh, actually is themselves someone uh, who's who's relatively more urban and maybe use these people as kind of you know country folk who who don't don't deserve respect and who they don't have any personal connection to and then I think you're also saying that you know obviously you know in the countryside people are more removed they don't have connections to the media they you know if you do protest in your little village no one's gonna see it whereas if you protest on the streets of Shanghai then everyone's gonna learn about it so they also have uh, less resources to sort of mobilize the media, um, on their, on their behalf and, and, uh, get, get popular support that might, that might give them more leverage. Yeah, exactly. I, I want to add one, one, one example here is that, for example, in environmental protest, when the local residents, they, they are opposing, um, an incineration plant in their neighborhood, they even get the local police officer, um, on their side. So, um, because the local police officers, they also fear the incineration projects and its environmental hazards. And they think that they are also potential victims in the future. So in this case, it shows that uh, the local police officers can feel um, what the protesters fear. So they share the similar claim, the similar grievances as well. Okay. Great. Well, this is fascinating. Um, so now uh, your 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 data is mainly from the period when when Hu Jintao was China's top leader, so roughly two thousand two to two thousand twelve, um, and uh, new research. But um, you know, certainly the the general narrative is that that everything has changed with Xi Jinping, and everything's much more repressive. Uh, a lot of these areas for openness, not just in sort of tolerance for protests, but also in terms of you know investigative journalism or you know. Uh, other kind of participatory uh, formal institutions 
um, have all been uh, suppressed relative to, to the past. So um, have you have you updated or do you have a sense mm-hmm. of, um, you know, how how are things going now relative to the period when you did your, your field work? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So in terms of the protest, so I, I did update my data set to the early C era. So um, based on the same coding method and the same data set, um, we extended the data to the uh, 2015. And uh, um, our uh, um, uh, regression analysis shows that uh, um, still the same types of protests that tend to be tolerated during the Hu era are tolerated during the early era. For example, disruptive, um, peaceful, uh, actions tend to be tolerated and economic and environmental protests tend to be tolerated compared to um, protests making radical political claims. And the protests with no links to other protests tend to be tolerated. So the pattern you'll see are still the same. And also um, between 2013 and 2016, I also did some interviews uh, with the uh, protesters, especially those who oppose the incineration projects in their own neighborhoods. And uh, uh, in my interviews with these people, they still, uh, I still see that as uh, the official toleration of public demonstrations. And, uh, but on the other hand, <laughs> in the newly published paper um, by me and uh, um, Manfred F. Strom, we found that uh, during the early C era, in our data set shows that uh, uh, if the uh, state has a higher capacity for using um, coercion, then they tend to use that capacity. That is, they translate their coercive capacity into um, repression. But this kind of um, positive relationship between coercive capacity and uh, repression is not seen during the whole era. So there are some differences. Um, but there are some continual uh, continuity during the at least during the early era. I would say there is still uh, some uh, the informal norms still work during the at least early era. Um, but the um, the the extent of the space for toleration may differ. But I don't have data on that, so. Uh, that is kind of my speculation. Sure. No, I understand. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, uh, yeah, we're, we're not journalists, but always, you know, it's interesting to see, you know, how things we sort of identify, Oh, here's this great system and we can see why it works. It makes total sense uh, in one era, but then, uh, you know, the world keeps changing. And so, uh, uh, sometimes our explanations that, that seemed really great, um, a, a while back may, may not, but, but there is also, you know, uh, it's tricky to, you know, in reporting, in reporting, it's always more interesting to have the story that stands out, you know, so the, the activist type who, you know, wants to, wants to bring, you know, change to the regime that Americans, you know, might be supportive of, you know, democratization or whatever, their, their stories, the ones that are, are most interesting to, you know, appear in the New York Times or any, you know, media, a Western reporter going around in China. So we hear about those, but, uh, you know, at this point, maybe another little anti, anti-pollution protest in a village, um, it doesn't get repressed, um, you know, might not make the news. So, um, so that's great. So, uh, w- tell me um, more about uh, what you're working on now. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, I'm working on two um, lines of uh, projects. So, one project is kind of tied to what uh, to your comments, which is about the media reports on protests in China. Um, so, my this. Uh, this project is about um, comparing media framing of protests across countries. So um, I'm working with uh, some graduate students um, um, to compare protests, um, uh, the New York Times uh, coverage of um, some similar movements uh, in France, the United States, and China, and see how the media report them using different uh, framing devices of framing tools in, in their coverage. And the second line of my research is about waste management in China. As um, Peter, you may know that China is um, in recent years staging some 
uh, uh, some very high-profile waste uh, resorting campaigns in different regions in China. Uh, the one of the most uh, high-profile uh, campaigns in Shanghai, and recently, more recently in Beijing. And uh, this waste uh, uh, resorting campaigns uh, not only took place in large cities, but also in rural areas. So uh, in this, my second book project, I want to compare different uh, uh, waste resorting campaigns across China in both rural and urban areas. So like resorting, like, like, uh, like recycling and like separating your plastics and your, your, uh, banana peels. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So like how, how, how they're trying to convince, uh, Chinese, I guess I would call them consumers or citizens to, um, uh, you know, not, not, not just dump everything into one bin, but be like, like we do here in San Francisco, where we've got two or three different bins and we want to have everything in the right, the right place. So it can be. Uh, dealt with as in a, the most right. eco-friendly way possible. Okay. Right. And some uh, local um, of, uh, local officials are treating the San Francisco model <laughs> as a, a kind of way to deal with the uh, garbage in their own locality. Okay. Well, that's uh, it's good to know some people still think San Francisco is a model. We definitely have uh, uh, our own complaints. But um, <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, well, that's great. I mean, you know, certainly uh, in in the area of uh, environment, there's uh, is one of the areas that remain where you know the the U.S. and China have uh, have so much to gain from uh, learning from each other and uh, cooperating for sort of the common uh, common goals of, uh, of protecting the earth, even if we disagree about a lot of other stuff. Um, so, as as last thing, I wanted to ask you uh, for uh, recommendations um, about anything uh, that you want to recommend to our listeners. So oh, one recommend, recommendation I have is related to my second book project. So this is a documentary I want to recommend, which is titled uh, Plastic China. So it's not quite new. It's, uh, it came out in 2016. And, um, but I highly recommend it because it is rumored to have influenced the Chinese leader's decision on, um, uh, on buying certain, um, certain plastic uh, importing from other countries. So Plastic China details lives of Chinese families who make a living by recycling plastic waste imported from uh, other countries, um, including America, some European countries, Australia, etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, it shows a human face of, and also the environmental and human cost of uh, recycling or dealing with those uh, imported plastic waste. Oh, great. That sounds fascinating. Is there an English um, subtitled version of that? Yes, it is. And it, okay. also, it also showed when I was a postdoc at Howard. Okay, so, great. Yeah, well, I'll Western put a link audience. to it uh, in, the, in the show notes. Yeah. And, and you said uh, you had a second? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have another recommendation, which is not about China and not about environmental issues, but it's, uh, it is about um, uh, the development issues in the um, Islam, uh, Islam world, uh, sorry, in the Muslim world. So the book um, that I recommend is titled Islam, Authoritarianism and Underdevelopment. Uh, it's uh, published in 2019 by Ahmed Kuru. So I think that the book impressed me because of its um, giving very unexpected answer to the normally um, posted question, which is about the underdevelopment and authoritarianism of the Muslim world. Well, the author clearly knows a lot, uh, have a very uh, impressive knowledge about this issue, and he goes to the deep history to give us an answer for this um, about the underdevelopment and authoritarianism of the Muslim world. So any people who are interested in in learning about um, this issue, can look at the book. So, so now I'm curious. At the risk of, uh, you know, obviously oversimplifying it, could you give me the the two sentence uh, version mm-hmm. of what what is the, the author's thesis or or what aspects is 
So basically, yeah. yeah, basically he's um he's going to the history um as deep uh, as early as the 11th century, and he's seeing that uh, from the 11th century the alliance between the Muslim regard uh, Muslim religious scholars their alliance with the military uh, forces. This kind of joining forces um uh, prevent the development of. Uh, uh, in, uh, intellectual freedom and also um, democracy uh, in the Muslim world. So that is the answer he gave us. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, I've uh, yeah, that'd be interesting to read. He certainly heard, you know, and I like that it's not uh, it's not you know there's a sort of always a fear of kind of cultural reductionism, like you know a specific religion or you know whether it's Confucian culture or Islam or something, you know they are this way because they've always been that way and they can never change. Um, but I think this emphasis on a, a you know, more of a political alliance um, uh, is, uh, is, is interesting and, you know, um, kind of provides an understanding of why there might be continuity, but also maybe some, uh, some hope for, for paths towards, uh, towards positive change. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's interesting because I, I guess my, my uh, very ignorant stereotype was that, that, you know, Islamic world was, was a little bit more intellectually free, you know, for a period of time, at least, at least compared to, you know, Europe in the middle ages, which was, which was really, um, oppressive and, and constrained. So, um, it's interesting to hear that, uh, there, there are elements where it's been, uh, kind of, you know, uh, a lot of, a lot of continuity there. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for taking time out of your day to, um, uh, to tell everyone about your book. Um, really enjoyed having you on the show. Um, and uh, good luck with everything. Thank you. My pleasure.